three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jeez. some of these people. I just, Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello? Namaste. Shalom. And welcome to... Guess who's back, guess who's back, guess who's back, guess who's back, Ricky's back, Nervous Habits 2020, a new slate, new, 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 episodes 2020, new slate of episodes, 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 episodes. What is up, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits Podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen. In case you are a brand new listener of the pod, uh, I want to give you a special welcome. Sorry to my regular listeners. You guys are now second fiddles. Um, and this is a podcast covering topics in psychology, technology, sociology, all the ologies, everything in between, before, after, above, below, inside, within, whatever. Listen, this week, we got an exciting episode planned. We, me, are going to be diving into memory and neuroplasticity, answering questions like, is it scientifically possible to remember events from our infancy or even birth Is it really true that we only use 10% of our brain capacity? Why is it that some of us have better memories than others? And finally, how your constant reliance on Google is eroding your brain's ability to retrieve old memories before the neuronal pathways decay. This is the outsourced brain hypothesis. All that and so much more on this brand new 2020 episode of Nervous Habits. Happy New Year, guys. We are in 2020, a brand new year, a new decade, and a fresh start. And for me, I mean, I, I it's, it's actually funny. I recorded half of, the, of this podcast, and then my computer, my microphone, I had some technological problems, and it died. It spazzed out. So that episode is lost, or that half episode is lost forever. I'm starting again. <laughs> um, but I am thrilled to get this podcast back from hiatus. It was about seven, eight weeks since the November mailbag check-in episode I did where I took some questions from you. Um, If you recall, I was beginning my law school finals. Those are now behind me, and it was a grind, pretty much entailed waking up at 8 a.m., studying for like 16 hours in a row every day uh, with a couple breaks and going to bed on a couch or on the floor (laughs) for a couple hours and doing it again like Groundhog Day for about three weeks. And so I survived. I survived finals. I know you guys are, are concerned concerned about me. Don't don't sweat it. I'm good. Um, I've spent the last few weeks since then visiting friends in New York and Boston, and spending some quality time at home with my fam and with Boston, who is that's, that's my dog's name, as well as the the um, you know the parrots, the one and only. Uh, and if you don't know, um, if you're a new listener, uh, I do have uh, parrots, tropical birds as pets, and you'll be hearing a lot about them. And of course, you know, planning new episodes of Nervous Habits for 2020. Um, 
what I want to tell you also. I got sick over break, which which was tough. Um, I was stricken with a bad case of laryngitis, believe it or not, right? Uh, unfortunate for me. And I actually tried to make the most of it. And so I recorded a bonus episode of the podcast with some friends with my laryngitis. Um, so it's, it's pretty amusing because you hear the banter, the back and forth that's usually uh, characteristic of the bonus episodes. And, you know, my voice is a little bit like this for a lot of it and <clears throat> a lot of coughing. Um, so hopefully it's, it's, it's pleasant to listen to as pleasant as could be under those circumstances. That'll be released in a, in a few weeks and I'll preview the slate of episodes we have coming back, uh, coming down the pike at the end of this one. This is of course the second year of the pod and I'm hoping that this year will be even better than the last. Um, there is a lot of, a lot of ideas, a lot of episodes that I, I I, I did get a chance to flush out that I wanted to do last year. I didn't get the chance to. So keep listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A lot of great stuff to come. In case this is your first time venturing into the Nervous Habits Vortex, you can follow us on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, and YouTube clips are stored um, on YouTube, obviously. So you can search for them by searching Nervous Habits Podcast. And OG listeners know that you can always write into the podcast by emailing nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. More often than not, your feedback, questions, or suggestions will be featured on the pod, usually usually at the beginning of the episode, if you have ideas for something you want me to cover, if you think I talk too fast. One of my best friends listens to the podcast, um, and he mentioned to someone else that I talk too fast. But... I'm not going to stop doing that. So sorry. Sorry about that, Ben. Um, and let me know, you know, what you think. Um, yeah. If you are a new listener, usually I do a lot of the episodes on my own. Occasionally I'll bring on friends, family, acquaintances, random people I encounter in the street uh, who can shed some light on the topics that we discuss. Uh, some of the episodes will include um, just one segment if the segment is far-reaching and broad, and there's a lot of interesting subtopics like today's will be. Sometimes there are two or three segments. It sort of just depends. Um, and in the last like six months, uh, towards the end of 2019, I got into these bonus episodes, which are more for fun for me. It's less scripted, pre-planned, heavily researched. It's more my friends and I just sitting around, shooting the shit, talking about dating or pop culture, or, you know, how to live the best life. In one episode... One of my friends and I, we talked about absolutely nothing for 90 minutes. So um, for some reason, people listen to the bonus episodes. Um, there are some bonus episodes that <clears throat> folks have listened to more than the regular episodes. So I'm going to keep doing those. Look for those to be a continuing part of the pod in 2020. I think that's all the air quotes housekeeping I wanted to get through. Let's dive into today's topic. Uh, for This is the first time that I'm diving into this topic, um, for which is memory and neuroplasticity. Two concepts which are far more complicated than they they appear at first glance. And I guess a good place to start is, you know, tell me if this has ever happened to you guys. You stroll into your kitchen for a midnight snack and all of a sudden your mind goes blank and you have absolutely no idea why you came to the room. Or you pass someone in the hallway, who someone who looks exactly, you know, extremely familiar and he smiles at you, you smile back. And then you're just scratching your head. Who the hell was that? You can't for the life of you remember his name. Maybe you're in a conversation with a friend and you know that you have something really important to say and God, I, I, I can't, what was it? And you can't for the life of you remember what it was. Memories are some of the most mysterious things about the human condition. 
And it's also the only thing that we have left from the past. Because if you think about it, every event that you've ever experienced, everything that's ever happened to you has become a memory. It's vestigial. There's nothing that you have left from your past experiences except what you take from your memories. And this is particularly true when you think about your childhood. Because no matter how difficult your childhood was or how privileged and fantastic, no matter how viscerally painful or delightfully blissful some of your experiences were or how they molded you into who you are, how many of us consciously relive our childhoods on a day-to-day basis? We're far away, we're far removed from whoever we were in the past, from those past experiences. Yet, at the same time, we're stricken with these random fragments of memories and experiences that we're just hit with seemingly out of nowhere on a daily basis. How you know? I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but are you ever just sitting around, maybe reading a book, maybe going for a walk? I, I mean, it's funny, you know, that's not sitting around, but and these memories will just come through and hit us out of nowhere in our daily waking lives. Just the other day, I was, I, I don't know if I was eating lunch or I was listening to music, and I was hit with the memory of sitting on a carpet in first grade in my teacher's classroom, going through the rhyming family, you know, cat, hat, that, pat. Can, can, you, can you tell I'm in law school? Um, weeks ago, I, I I was sitting at my computer and I just started thinking about how I was in fifth grade and we made shoeboxes and every kid got a state and I, mine was Nebraska and you know I cut out magazine clippings and made a Nebraska shoebox. And the other day, I remembered you know how when I was in summer camp, sitting at the picnic tables, a bunch of us would try to place plastic cups over bees and one of them you know I missed and he, he stung me on the finger and I cried all day. Um, and you know, I, I remembering how my dad brought home Pudgy's chicken every Friday night growing up. My childhood, like yours, was filled with millions of individual events, but these few have stuck out for one reason or another. They were significant enough to just come upon me when my mind was idling, when I least expected it, least anticipated it. Now, these were encoded into my memory, and we'll talk a lot about encoding later, and have been retrieved so many times over the last few years that eventually this handful of memories, you know, whether it be 5, 10, or 100, these are all that I remember of my childhood. 18 years of my life distilled to a few still mental photographs of sitting on a carpet and eating fried chicken with my, with my sisters. And it's actually amazing how and why these are the memories that my mind chose to stick with. Because as I said, every day is filled with millions of discrete, separate experiences. Some are actually more memorable and more vivid, but those are not the ones that I remember sitting here as a 27-year-old. And a lot of people will listen to this and say, yeah, you know, it's so random that we remember these things. You might hear someone come up to you at the gym, yeah, I just remembered the most random thing. I just had the most random thought. Random, random. There is no such thing as random when it comes to the human brain, you guys. The brain has been scientifically proven to be extraordinarily plastic. What does this mean? I don't mean plastic as in bubble wrap. I mean plastic as in it's constantly growing and evolving and reworking. It's dynamic. And our brain is, you can actually choose, if, if you want to, you can control what you remember and what you forget. And I'm going to get into neuroplasticity as, as I mentioned earlier later. But my point is, we have the agency 
to decide which memories we want to hold on to and which we want to let go of. And it's not an exact science, obviously. It never is when it comes to you know neuroscience. But there are ways that you can influence this seemingly random recall. There are tactics. There are strategies. And I do think this is something we need to take seriously because our memories are ultimately, as I said before, all we have left of the past. Because if you're a nihilist, if you think that, or a hedonist, if you think that all of life is devoid of meaning and all we should care about is the present, being free of present pain and or and future pain and um, embracing present pleasure and future pleasure, if you have that like basic hedonist utilitarian impulse, memory, uh, rather past experiences don't mean anything. What happened to you a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? All that matters is the here and now. So if you have that mentality, it's like why, why remember anything? But for me, I think that pragmatically speaking, our memory, our experiences made us who we are today, and life isn't really worth living if if we if if our experiences don't amount to anything, then why have them at all? It it becomes it becomes difficult to to see the meaning in anything we do. And I don't mean to get all metaphysical, but it's something to consider that you know, you need to take the time to appreciate and to retrieve your memories in order to stay close to the experiences that you have had, especially those that are formative and those that are important and those that are part of your identity. Things that you want to remember um, and maybe things that you want to forget, you know, keep those away as well. Otherwise, it all becomes obsolete. So memory recall is is really crucial and, and um, there's a lot to unpack here. And I guess a good place to start is with infancy, obviously, like start start at the beginning. Some people claim that they can remember events from their infancy. You probably have heard friends or family or or you know people just say just say to you, oh, you know, I can remember my birth. I can remember coming home with my mom for the first time. I can remember my first words. Guys, this is actually scientifically inaccurate, and there's always going to be anecdotal claims to the contrary. But the research just doesn't suggest that people can remember things in the first year or two of their lives. And, you know, I know you think that you remember, you know, uh, sitting on your mom's lap and watching My Fair Lady or having your dad, you know, grill you, make you grill cheese when you were two years old. Guys, sometimes what happens is you have been told or, or you know, th- things have been shared with you so much that what you actually think is a memory is, is more of like a synthetic artificial mirage more of a, a uh, you know, an abstraction, a shadow than a memory itself. Because, you know, scientifically, there's there's this phenomenon, it's called childhood or infantile amnesia, which is the inability to remember early events in our childhood. And just for new listeners of the pod, um, you know, I, I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up when I venture into scientific terrain. So I will be including um, links and infographics where you can see exactly how I got this information. Um, This in particular is from uh, Live Science. And there are varying explanations. There is um, a lot that we don't know when it comes to the brain and when it comes to memory. Freud, for example, his explanation for infantile amnesia, he thinks that we are repressing our early childhood memories because of their sexual, of course, and traumatic nature. So we essentially... It's it's so painful for us to relive um, the trauma of being born that that we you know we repress it so that we never have to. And other scientists believe that infants just don't have the mental capacity for what's called declarative memory. Their brains are too physiological, uh, physiologically immature. They're not developed enough. But modern scientists, what they believe, in, and this is actually for me the most compelling explanation for why it's impossible to remember 
your your you know early childhood your your infantile experiences is because we don't we didn't have the language to encode them when they were formed because if you think about it language is the most essential ingredient to recalling memories if 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 you don't have the language to preserve something for later and then kind of communicate it back to yourself it's virt- it's almost virtually impossible for you to to understand what was happening at the time that it was encoded. And by that I mean, let's say hypothetically, you know, you go on a, a vacation when you're a little kid and all this stuff is happening around you, but you and maybe you maybe you have a, a vision of what it looks like or sounds like sensu- you know, with your senses you know, but you can't actually describe what you saw or what you heard. How are you going to Number one, encode it, which is recording it for later, and then recall what you know would be a memory. You just you can't do it without language because language is vital to encoding autobiographical memories. Um, and I'm I'm going to get into encoding a little later, but um, to actually recording these memories, and the science backs this up because children's long-term memories appear to form around the time that they start speaking. So the idea is that when we experience things as kids. We can't properly encode them because we don't have that language, and so we can't remember it. And under this idea, if you have a child prodigy, let's say someone who can learn language before the age of one, he or she will be able to remember more things than the child, the average child that doesn't learn you know, sophisticated language until the age of two. Other researchers argue that language does not tell the full story because other animals— um, also show infantile amnesia. So, you know, dogs, you know, mammals and birds and snakes, and they don't have the language capacity, except for except for birds, as as, as I've mentioned numerous times on the, on the pod about the, the language. I did a whole episode on the language act, uh, abilities of, of parrots. So this, so other scientists think this is not exactly conclusive. And, you know, it is possible that some people who claim to remember their birth or remember being brought home from the, possible, uh, from the hospital it is possible that they're remembering the exact event. There's just no way of knowing. The problem when you think about something like memory is the inherent subjectivity of it. Someone is telling you they remember an event. I'm not inside their brain. I can't tell you specifically what they're seeing and hearing and recalling. So it could be that they remember. It's just it's extremely unlikely because they didn't have that language at the age of you know a month or a day if they're remembering their birth to encode what they're remembering and more likely it's 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 a mirage it's it's a an abstraction it's this synthetic thing that they think they're remembering but actually doesn't exist and you know i I make a lot of references tv and movie references in the pod just because i think it's helpful for it's helpful for me um and maybe (laughs) it's helpful for me to to like explain it and and maybe it's helpful or entertaining for some of you guys but See, it's funny now. I'm forget speaking memory. Now I'm forgetting what what I wanted to say with um with movies. Okay, so what I wanted to say actually was uh was I wanted to mention Black Mirror, um which is one of my favorites, if not my favorite show. And they had an episode called "The Entire History of You," where there was a device, um a, a, a neural implant that went inside your ear, um and connected to to your brain and it allowed you whenever you recalled a memory to play it on a video screen for other people to see um and this technology 
would kind of get around the problem of subjectivity with memory recall because I just mentioned I don't know if you're remembering your birth, if you're remembering something else. Well, what if we're sitting together and you know you throw it up on a you know 50 inch TV screen? Then all of a sudden we're both reliving that memory. So that's kind of an interesting uh, intersection between technology and psychology. Something I, I I like to do a lot in the pod, um, which you know begs a lot of questions about pragmatically speaking. I mean privacy, but pragmatically speaking. Um, does it help us to understand our own memories if we can, you know, watch if we can physically watch them on a TV screen as opposed to just sitting in the dark with our eyes closed, like trying to reshape and, and reimagine what that was like? So that you know, it's just an interesting. If you have seen Black Mirror, it's an interesting analogy uh, comparison. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you watch the entire series except for the last season. Um, but specifically watch the entire history history of you. I think it's in season two, episode two or three. Um. And you really think about how how that works. But, you know, before we dive into the process of making memories, I just want to kind of re-emphasize why it's important, and, and I alluded to this earlier, why it's important to um, to revisit our memories at all. And I'm gonna I'm gonna speak about amnesia in a moment, which is the for uh, retrograde amnesia, which is the inability to remember the past. Let's say we didn't have memory, you guys. Let's say every day we started fresh. And, you know, it, it was a blank slate. We couldn't remember what happened prior. There's, I mean, you know, if you think about pop culture, there's a really good book, actually. Um, it's called, I think it's called Before I Sleep or Before I Go to Sleep. It's by S.J. Watson. And it's about a woman, really interesting, who at the end of every night, she forgets what happened to her previously. So she keeps a journal and... um. Every day in the journal, she writes the events that happened the previous day, and she hides it in her closet from her husband because her husband doesn't know. Um, the husband knows that she has this retrograde amnesia, but the husband doesn't know that she's keeping a journal. So then every day, she I think she leaves a note for herself or something that says like "check the closet," and then she goes in the closet, she reads the journal, and she re she rereads every fact about her life, um, or every, she rereads every day that she's experienced in the journal. And then she has to like relearn everything about her life and then go through that day. So imagine that you're, you wake up, you go into, you know, you have no memory of your life. You go into the, the closet and you, you read this journal that tells you everything that's happened the previous day. At the end of the day, you write in the journal, you put it in, you know, in the closet and you relive the same day over and over again. That is one hell of a strenuous existence, right? Like we should be, we should, it's a privilege that we can remember what's happened to us. Um, I mean, also... One last pop culture example, then I promise I'm going to move on. But a, a great example is Westworld. Next to Black Mirror, that's another show that I reference a, a whole lot on the pod um, just because of its psychological themes and roots. But on Westworld, the hosts, um, the robots, essentially they operate in these narrative loops where like essentially one of the characters, uh, Dolores, the protagonist, she has this loop where she goes into town every day and the you know she picks up this, this can of peaches or something and then uh, this t- guy Teddy comes and... At the end of the day, when the uh, hosts go to sleep, the engineers come and they wipe their memories so they have no memory of the previous day and they do it all over again. And the reason why the engineers put the robots through this is because guests come to the park and the guests will, you know, uh, rape and maim and torture these robots because that's the sadistic thrill of, you know, robot amusement park. And they don't want the robots to have to relive and experience that trauma. Um, But... You know, the point is, if you think about how uh, humans are different than robots, 
one of the one of the differences could be memory that we remember everything that's happened to us instead of having to live on those narrative loops like robots because you know think about what that experience would be like it would be groundhog day doing the same thing over and over again so i've taken a lot of time to spell out you know why why memory is is so fundamental to our lived experiences i do want to like get into um what we're kind of expound upon what we're talking about when we talk about memory and I'm going to, I think I'm going to slow down a little bit because I'm getting a little, it happens a lot of nervous habits if you're a new listener. I'm getting a little like manic and overexcited and, and talking too fast. And um, I think part of it is, I uh, I think I mentioned, I like, I recorded half, half of this segment already. So, um, but anyways, okay, listen. So there are two types of memory mainly that, that, um, that, that I want to focus on and there's short-term memory and long-term memory. Long-term memory is what we're going to devote most of the episode to exploring because that that's the memory that pertains to your childhood and your, you know, key life experiences. Short-term memory is something that you remember only for a few minutes or, or a few seconds when you need to, to recall something. So this would be like when you have to take down a friend's phone number, but you don't have a pen and you need to remember it. Or when you're a waiter, like, like I was, and you need to remember what tables 14 and 15 ordered. So this is called working memory. And there are heuristics that you can use to remember things for a very limited window. And one of the cognitive heuristics, one of the shortcuts, is called chunking. So instead of having to remember a phone number, instead of having to remember you know, 212-555-8831, which is kind of stressful to have to remember what, you know, uh, 10 digits... Two one two five like which was it? Instead, with chunking, you break it into uh, palatable chunks. So two one two five 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 eight eight three one. So then you remember two one two two one two two one two five 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 eight eight three one eight eight three one. And then all of a sudden, you put the chunks together and you have your ten digit number. Similarly, you know, instead of remembering that table fourteen was a Grilled rack of ham, uh, ham. <laughs> grilled lack of uh, lack. Oh my! I'm like I'm falling apart, guys. Instead of having to remember that table 14 was a grilled rack of lamb with you know uh, asparagus, no butter, extra lemon zest, and a grilled yellow fin ahi with fresh artichoke hearts and capers, it's far easier to remember lamb, asparagus, no butter, lemon, and yellowfin artichoke capers. So lamb, asparagus, no butter. Yellowfin, Archer. And, and all of a sudden, when you combine the chunks, then you remember the whole order. That's just, it, it's kind of a, the human brain cannot hold a lot of information in its working memory, much like, you know, if, if you, if, if I had to transport, um, you know, six 24 packs of water, I probably can't carry all six up the stairs at once, but if you give me one or two at a time, I'll make three trips and I'll do it. The same way with chunking. We can't remember 10-digit phone numbers or complex orders, but we can break them down to to aid us in our short-term memory. Now, another cognitive device or cognitive heuristic that we can use for short-term memory is mnemonic devices. And those are good to to recall, like if you have a list or a group of, of, of something like names, for example. Let's say you have an important business meeting and... You know people's names ahead of time, but you don't want to have to ask them a hundred times. You know, was it P? Was it uh, Patrick or was it Peter? Um, was it Tom or was it Tim? Um, you can remember before the meeting an acronym that will aid you. You can tell yourself um, if there's Peter, Edward, 
Amy, and Roger, you can just remember pair. And then when you walk into the meeting, you know, it's far easier for you to remember Edward when you have E, right? Like think about when you meet a new person and you want to guess their name or their middle name. You'll say, what does it start with? Does it start with a B? Does it start with a C? Why do we do that? Because we're narrowing the pool. We're trying to give our brain a little nudge in the right direction. Because if you can't remember the name, but then you remember pair, and then you know it's A, and you know it's a girl with an A, all of a sudden your brain is going to pop that, you know, it's going to remind you that it's Amy. And, you know, that only works uh, for things in the short term. So I doubt that if, you know, if you remember pair in five days, let alone five years, you'll be able to tell me what it stands for. But I use mnemonics all the time in, uh, for studying in school. I would, you know, for all my AP classes in high school where I'd have to drill information into my head rather than, you know, sitting with flashcards and just, you know, rotely memorizing, I would, you know, if I was learning the parts of a cell or countries in the Middle East, in order to, to do that, I would make mnemonics. I, I would take a word like shoe or radio and break it down so every letter corresponded to a cell part or to a country. And that was, to be honest, like that was kind of like a, a cheat code for me in academia and something that even in law school I kind of rely on to this day. Um, so I, the, the takeaway from there is that working memory is it's it's really important, but um, it's not something that that will last longer than you know a few minutes to like to like an hour. And then there's long term memory, and long term memory is um, I think far more significant because this is you know these are the memories that end up being very salient and shaping your your identity and your development. And there's there's two types of um, long term memory, and you, you know some of you guys might might know this if you took um, like a neuro or psych class, but there's Procedural memory, which is remembering how to do things like swinging a bat or driving a car, um, that's like muscle memory if you've heard that. Then there's declarative memory, which is remembering facts and details like the capital of France and the rules of baseball. Now, declarative memory also has two subtypes. So general knowledge, like the things I just mentioned um, of, of the world, like how to say thank you in Spanish or the planets in the solar system or the number of bones in your body. General knowledge is semantic memory. That, that's the first kind of, of declarative memory. Then there's episodic memory. And these are things that have happened to you. This is autobiographical memory. Um, like we talked about earlier, this is like your ninth birthday party or your first kiss or you know learning to ride a bike for the first time. And the distinction between episodic memory, autobiographical, and semantic, this explains why when people experience retrograde amnesia, which is, an, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think, an inability to retrieve memories. Generally, episodic memory is impaired, but semantic is not. And so amnesia patients, if you give them their cell phone, a lot of them will have no problem remembering their passcode, believe it or not. Or, you know, if you you know put them in front of a locker, they'll have no problem remembering their locker combination or who was the president at the time, but they can't remember their husband or their wife or their parents or where they went to college which is the craziest thing. They, they can remember that they love apple pie, but they can't remember ever eating apple pie. You know, and, and that's just the, the, the fact that we can remember the uh, semantic but not the episodic. It's so curious that the brain almost files these memories into different departments where one of them becomes completely closed off to us if there's damage to the hippocampus, which is the region of the brain um, responsible for encoding memories. But the other one is just completely, you know, uninhibited. 
And you see this again in and uh, depicted pretty accurately in or maybe not accurately, but but it's a good representation in um in film. Like for example, if you guys have ever seen Fifty First Dates with uh, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, the main character um she she remembers that she you know has these preferences like you know certain foods, certain um, movies, whatever. But she doesn't remember her you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, the, uh, the Adam Sandler character, the boyfriend. And it's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me um, as we learn about, you know, the more we learn about retrograde amnesia that people remember thing, you know, certain things but not others. And then, of course, there's enterograde amnesia, which is an inability to make new memories. And you see this with diseases like Alzheimer's where an elder remembers their family for a few fleeting moments but then when they leave and come back, they're like a stranger. So, you know, unlocking memory is, you know, it's going to be important to you later in life because it's, it's Alzheimer's and dementia are very, very common. Um, so as, as I'll talk about later, you know, m- memory, the process of recalling and encoding memory, the more we do that, the stronger these, these synaptic pathways become and the more likely you are to remember things later in life, believe it or not. The science actually backs that up. So let's kind of like get into the neuroscience a little bit. Um, and I, I mean, my my background, um, so I'm a, I'm, a law, I'm a law student, obviously. I, I studied psychology and neuroscience in college. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not like a doctoral student in this, but uh, I am relatively well-read. So, so I, I um, but obviously, as I said before, uh, you know, gonna, gonna make sure I, I link um, all of the all the the science websites, Scientific American is one that I use a lot. Smithsonian Mag, just so you you know you have inform you know where the information is coming from, and you can access it more if you're curious. So the memory process involves three stages, and I mentioned I think I mentioned all of them before, but just to make sure, I'm really explicit here. There's the encoding stage, the storage stage, and the retrieval stage. Now, in the best explanation for encoding. Is, is like recording a video on your iPhone. It's when you're actually embedding information into your memory. Storage is like saving the video onto your iPhone, retaining the encoded information in your memory, you know, putting it in your hard drive. And retrieval is actually accessing and recalling the information when needed. So, you know, years later, when you want to go into your iPhone and you want to watch that video of you know, the week you spent in Europe with your best friend, that would be retrieval. So encoding, storage, and retrieval. Now recording a memory, the encoding step, that requires adjusting the connections between neurons. So every memory that you encode tweaks some subset of the neurons in your brain. And you probably know this, but your brain has 100 billion neurons in total. It's it's really unfathomable how complex the network of cells is in your brain. And the memories change the way that the neurons communicate. Neurons send messages to each other across these these gaps, which are called synapses. And short-term memories, those lasting a few minutes, those are just quick and simple chemical changes to the synapses that make it work more efficiently. So something transient, something short-lasting, it doesn't, you know, working memory, the mnemonic devices, the things I mentioned earlier, the cognitive heuristics, they don't have, you know, long-lasting impacts on your electrical or chemical composition of your neurons. But, you guys, to build a memory that lasts days or months, even years, 
Neurons have to manufacture new proteins and expand the docks, if you will, to make the neurotransmitter traffic run more efficiently. So this long-term memory, actually remembering, you know, summer camp when you were a kid or remembering your grandma's birthday or, you know, hanging out with with your extended family, these actually have to be built into your brain's synapses. This isn't a short-lasting, you know, chemical change. Instead, you know, this is this is completely permanently, and I hesitate to use the word permanent, but um, actually changing the way that your neurons work. And that's why when scientists, neuroscientists believe that when a memory is constructed, it can't actually be undone. And the word that they use and the word that you're going to, you know, hear, hear a lot in um, memory research is called memory consolidation. You've probably uh, heard a lot about this, especially with sleep. I think I talked about in episode 12 when I went into the purpose of sleep, um, one of the purposes is to consolidate memory. Well, what does that mean? That means that when you're sleeping, what your neurons are doing is they're actually, um, you know, storing the, encoding and storing the experiences that you've had so they can be retrieved later on. So a really good visual explanation for this, you guys, is that the the long-term memory system works like a pen and notebook. So when you encode a, a, a you know an experience uh, a, a memory it's almost like writing it out in ink and for a brief time before the ink dries it's possible to smudge what's written right but after the memory is consolidated it changes very little so the memories it might fade over time like like a like an old photograph but under normal circumstances the content of the memory stays the same no matter how many times it's taken out and read, which is completely baffling that it does have, that long-term memories do have this sense of permanence once that ink has dried. And this is why, you guys, once you've learned something a certain way, it becomes almost impossible for you to learn something the other way. You can relate to this, you know, in, in if you were in school and you learned about, you know, the, the I'll just stick with something simple. You learned about the planets and you learned about, you know, how it was... Uh, Pluto was was the last planet of the solar system. And then, I mean, I, at least when I was a kid, Pluto was, was one of the planets in the solar system. And now kids today, they're not learning Pluto. You know, it's Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, um, uh, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and that's it. No more Pluto. And now, as kind of a gut reaction when someone asks the planets, a lot of us will probably mention Pluto. And the reason for that is once you've learned it that way, it, it's impo- once the ink is dried, it's impossible to unlearn it. This is also why... I can never remember how to spell restaurant and whether the U is before or after the second R, or, you know, maybe there's two U's or why whenever I get off the subway in New York, I never know if I should make a left and head to the east side or the west side because once you, once that long-term memory is consolidated, once you've learned something a certain way, it just becomes a fundamental part of how you recall the experience. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm blowing your minds right now. This is, I mean, the, memory retrieval is really goddamn interesting, you guys. And I want to kind of address some of the myths of, uh, you know, of memory retrieval and brain capacity because a lot of you guys have probably heard that thing that most people only use 10% of their brain capacity or 15%. And um, I mean, that, that's been going on. I remember when I was in uh, high school, we had these little agendas. And in the bottom corner of the agenda, if, if anyone, you know, listening went to uh, my generation, went to high school in like the, the early mid-2000s, was it? No, it was like 2006, 2010. You'll, you'll remember there were interesting facts written at the bottom of the agenda. And one of them was, um, 
that we only use 10% of our brain capacity. And it's kind of irresponsible for them to be, <laughs> to be publishing that for people to learn at this like key stage in our lives when the ink is drying or whatever. Um, because that's just fundamentally untrue. And um, modern scans, uh, brain scans, fMRIs, they show activity coursing through the entire organ. The brain is highly specialized. The uh, prefrontal cortex has all these different divisions responsible for um, different functions. And even when we're resting, uh, pretty much the entire brain is is surging with activity. We also know that it's not true because minor brain damage can have devastating effects. And if neural tissue, for example, representing a limb is rendered redundant um, by the loss of that limb very quickly, neighboring areas will recruit that tissue into new functions So um, to represent other body regions. And this, is, this shows how readily the brain will utilize all available neural tissue to be efficient and to make sure it's, it's you know, using all of the resources at its disposal. So contrary to movies like... Um, I, I, yeah, I feel like, man, this is like, usually I make movie references. I feel like this is like my fifth or sixth one, but um, movies like Lucy, that ScarJo movie, which was, uh, that was a, a colossal disaster. Limitless, which have their, as their central premise, you know, that the main character finds a way to unlock their full brain capacity. Guys, that's not true. We're always using our brain capacity. I think also in uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is maybe my favorite book. It's something I mention a lot on the pod. I think, uh, the journalist Lowell Thomas, I think he actually disseminated that myth. He mentioned it in the preface to How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's just not true. Um, we, so guys, you're always using. I don't. I don't want to throw a percentage out there, but but most of your brain is is usually being used. So I mean, another question that kind of posed at the outset that that I want to tackle here is, why do we have variation in memory? Why is it that some of us can remember in you know, vivid detail what we had for breakfast one morning, but, you know, you can't for the life of you, you know, wonder what you were wearing that day. And that's because memory is highly variable from person to person. This is why some people are able to remember, you know, more or in greater detail than others. Memory, much like a lot of things, there's a nature and there's a nurture component to it. So what does that mean? I mean, I'm I'm sure all you guys know. Every aspect of our personalities is the result of either our genetics, which is nature, um, our parents and, you know, our DNA, the things that are out of our control, and nurture, which is the environment in which we grew up. And um, nurture, as I said, the brain's very, like, dynamic and always changing. Um, so nurture is, is kind of uh, more open than nature. Nature is almost predetermined. Like, the, the way that you are as soon as, you know, you're conceived, you're, the embryo is... Um, that's the way that 50% or whatever the, the breakdown is of your identity is always going to be. But nurture is a little bit different because that's, that's how, you know, how we grow up and how we develop. And so for, for memory, much like a lot of other things, the more that we use it, the more that we access it, the stronger it grows. So over time, particularly for short-term memories, if the information isn't regularly rehearsed or returned to, the neuronal pathways decay and the memory fades, never having made it to our long-term memory. And I say this every episode, just in case you're new to the pod, but if you've been zoning out for the past, what, 40, 45 minutes, your attention is in and out, there's all this memory shit sounds really boring to you, and you can only take one thing away from the pod, this is it. If you don't rehearse or return to your memories, you will lose them forever. 
If you don't rehearse or return to your memories, you will lose them forever. If you don't rehearse or return to your memories, you will lose them forever. I don't usually repeat myself that much, but this is important. If you do not recall your memories, you will not have them. They will disappear. This is the entire concept of binging information in school, you know, teaching to the test and then immediately forgetting it. Why? Because that information is in your working memory. And I know I said working memory is a few minutes, but sometimes, you know, if you're cramming before a test, for example, that working memory can be maybe a few hours, maybe maybe a day, whatever. You can remember something for a short amount of time, but then you'll lose it forever. And this is one of the benefits of my like obsessive compulsive nature. I mentioned um you know, we did an episode on mental illness and I mentioned um, my my obsessive compulsive disorder. Because I ruminate over events and experiences, I tend to remember things, particularly minute details, much more than the average person, you know, which is, I guess, okay in certain contexts. But of course, it can be debilitating because let's face it, who actually needs to remember that, you know, my childhood friend would always get extra mayo on his roast beef deli sandwich in seventh grade or who got cold called in the fourth contract class in law school. It's inconsequential. But more importantly, you guys, this is why the internet and cell phones are weakening our memories. This is something that all of you know intuitively. Maybe you've thought about it, but maybe you haven't like articulated it. You haven't made really sure of how to conceptualize it. This is what what is called the outsourced brain hypothesis. I think I mentioned the outsourced brain hypothesis back in episode 19, which I read about in a book um, called Bored and Brilliant. But essentially the idea is that because we, we go out in the world with our phones and we take photographs and videos and Snapchats and Instagrams of objects and places and people we are less likely to remember that because we are outsourcing the encoding function of our brains to our cell phones. Because if you think about it, I mentioned earlier, the processes of memory are encoding, storage, and retrieval. You know, encoding, we're recording it, storage, we're saving it, and retrieval, we're pulling it back later. If If you're sitting at a baseball game and... For some reason, you want to record the last out or something, which I'm I'm guilty of doing. And you're, you know, maybe you're half watching, but you're holding your phone, or maybe you're just literally just recording it on your phone and not really paying attention. Your brain no longer has to encode the sensory experiences around it because you're relying on your phone to do that, right? Your friend is, is sitting next to you in the driver's seat. He's giving you directions. You don't need to know where you're going, right? You guys can relate to that. You know, you, you're you have to navigate to a restaurant. You're driving, your buddy gives you directions. If, if your buddy says, okay, I'm not going to navigate, you have to find your way back home, you're not going to remember how to get home because you're relying on your friend to do that for you. So that's the outsourced brain hypothesis. And what ends up happening insofar as retrieval is concerned, you guys, is you forget how to retrieve things, or not even how, but you forget to retrieve things because of your dependence on the internet. How many times are you out with your friends and you cannot for the life of you remember who played the villain in the superhero movie you just saw or who won the World Series in 1995? The first thing that someone does, the first thing that someone does in 2020 is they pull out their phone and they Google it. 
They think that they're being the hero in this scenario. I'll save you guys. I'm coming to the rescue. I know that the Braves won the World Series in 95, which, by the way, I, I would know if I was there. But uh, uh, they think they're being the hero in this scenario. But in this instance, they're not doing anyone any favors. It's almost like when you're at the gym, um, you know, if, if I got some, some gym listeners out there, and you're on the bench, and you got one more rep to do, you're pushing it up, and then your buddy snatches it away from you. He thinks like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, uh, I'm helping my friend. I'm saving him. He, 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 you know, he wasn't. But in the words of, of my dear friend Jeremy, who you'll hear from on the bonus episode soon, you're stealing my gains, man. You're not helping someone by lifting that weight off their shoulders. When muscle is actually built, this, this actually ended up being a pretty decent analogy. When the muscle is built, mu- muscle is built from pushing out that last rep, right? In the same way that mu- that memory muscle, the, the neuronal pathways are strengthened by actually struggling to remember that superhero or who won the World Series. Because over time, your brain does not retrieve the information and just expects others to do it. You guys, remember, you're sitting in the car and you're driving and your friend's giving you directions. You don't have to remember where you're going because you know your friend is going to do it. You don't have to remember the actors or, or you know the, the oceans of the world or the paintings in the Met because you know you can just look it up online. What this leads to is this leads to a, a breakdown in memory. I mentioned at the outset um, that your constant reliance on Google is eroding your brain's ability to retrieve uh, old memories because these neuronal pathways decay if they're not actually used. And so when I'm out with friends and, and you know, uh, friends, friends of mine who have, who have listened uh, or friends of mine listening who um, spend time with me know, know this about me. We, I always sit there and try to brute force it, push myself to remember because otherwise your brain will rot. Human beings have been around for, uh, you know, thousands of years without cell phones having to recall specific information about history, um, about the world around them, without having this this repository of, of information at our disposal. And another theme of the pod, and, um, and I, you know, I, I hate to say this, but just, you know, for, for the new listeners, another theme of the pod is uh, my love-hate relationship with technology because as much as I think technology you know, connects us and it opens us up to access to information and all that wonderful things. I think in, in all those wonderful things, I think in some ways, um, it's detrimental. And this is, this is one of the key ones. So next time someone wants to Google it, next time someone, you know, wants to be a hero, tell them to stop for a minute so you can give your brain a workout. And, you know, I, I mentioned the nature nurture thing a few minutes ago. I mentioned that genetics is a big part of the variability in memory because a lot of us are just predisposed to having a fantastic memory. You know, photographic memory is a real scientifically proven phenomenon. In one study, in large scale study, it was found that some people had a heightened episodic memory. Episodic memory, remember, is is, um, autobiographical. So these people with what's called highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM, there's your your acronym, guys, they do have enlarged areas in the temporal and parietal lobes of of the prefrontal cortex, both of which are linked to memory storage and retrieval. So this gives people an increased organizational capacity. So imagine like if, you know, you and I had had, uh, a desk, we both both had had two separate desks um, at, at our office and, you know, my, I had two drawers in my desk and you had four, obviously, you know, you can hold more files than I can. 
It's the same way with these people with with, with HSAM. They're able to to memorize thousands of digits of pi in a matter of hours. While you know maybe I'm you know able to remember ten digits or something like that because uh, genetically speaking they have that photographic memory. So that that's you know that that's a very it places a lot of people at a significant advantage in um, all different contexts that they have that memory advantage. And genetically speaking, studies have also found that certain genes affect the density of dopamine receptors in the brain. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that helps us to recall episodic memories from the past. You think that, you know, you hear dopamine and you think of, you think about do- the dopamine rush of a positive experience of dopamine reinforcing uh, drug addictions and reinforcing, um, you know, relationship dependency. But dopamine is also uh, useful for helping us to recall memories. So in one study in particular those people with certain gene activations enjoyed a higher density of dopamine receptors in the hippocampus and also had stronger powers of recall as they aged. So all of this, you guys, everything that, that I'm telling you is all about keeping the the brain um, sturdy and resilient as you, you know, go on throughout your life. Because as I said, you know, memory retrieval is like working on a muscle. And if you don't use it, you know, the muscles are going to atrophy. So I found when I was do re- doing research on, on um, for this episode that the connection to dopamine was particularly interesting because I mentioned in, in terms of the neuroscience earlier when I talked about encoding how um, short-term memories are built into – or not built. Short-term memories involve quick chemical changes and long-term memories are built into the synapse. When you think about uh, chemicals, neurotransmitters, you don't think about something like dopamine or serotonin because those are traditionally linked to things like mood and you know life enjoyment and like short lasting experiences but the research shows that dopamine the density of dopamine receptors in the hippocampus actually leads to better recall so i don't know you know if there's a nurture implication there obviously you know once once you're born your um your genetics are fixed so i i don't know if you can change the level of dopamine in your brain with, with any sort of medication. I mean, if this was serotonin, there's obviously drugs like uh, SSRIs, ser- uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which um, change how much serotonin you have in your brain and help with depression and anxiety. So it might be interesting um, just kind of thinking out loud. And, and this, this, by the way, is me speaking off you know off the top of my head. I, like, like I haven't researched this, but I wonder if there's medication um, that could aid your dopamine receptors and consequently improve your memory, you know, um, improve memory consolidation. That might be something to research for me to research further or for you to research further and send me questions at nervous habits podcast at gmail.com, nervous habits podcast at gmail.com, also on Twitter, nervous habits underscore. Sorry, guys, I do that. I, uh, you know, I, listeners know that I do that. Um, uh, every every so often, but I don't know. That was an interesting takeaway for me. Um, and there's there's a, there's a couple more things I want to want to talk through about memory here. I mentioned um, several times this uh, function of neuroplasticity and what that means. And the brain is dynamic. The brain is always changing. So neuroplasticity is just the idea that the brain can change continuously throughout an individual's life, and ne- neural pathways are always forming. I, I mentioned, you know, the negative implication of this is that neuronal pathways are decaying, but also neuronal pathways can develop and can strengthen. And so every time a memory changes, or rather, every time you retrieve a memory, 
of an experience, it changes. And in some ways, with the passage of time, we move further away from the experience and further away from the memory itself. So the human memory is not, what I meant to say was it doesn't work precisely like a video recorder because I know I made the analogy earlier to kind of introduce the concepts of encoding, storage, and retrieval, but when you record a video, you know, you're recording an event and on cue playing back an exact replica of the event. But on the contrary, when memories are reconstructed and played back each time we recall them, the act of remembering is not watching the video of the experience like in the Black Mirror episode where you're, you know, watching a movie of what you went through. It's more akin to putting puzzle puzzle pieces back together rather than retrieving a video recording. So let's say you have dinner with a friend in Central Park and you watch the sunset. The day after the dinner, you try to remember every detail, the color of the sky, the smell of the flowers, the, you know, two rabid squirrels that are waiting nearby for food. The next day, you try to remember the exact same memory, but suddenly the sky is a shade darker and there is maybe one squirrel instead of two and the following week, it's cloudy. And gradually over time, you don't remember the original memory. It, it's it's hard, it's more difficult for you to, to retrieve exactly what that experience was. And rather, each subsequent retrieval, you're remembering the previously retrieved version of the memory. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of like go through that again. Cause I know it's, I'm not, I'm not explaining it well. And also it's like, it's like a difficult concept. So this one psychologist at the university of California, Irvine, Elizabeth Loftus, she believes that it's impossible to recall the same memory twice insofar as the first time that you have an experience that experience can never be retrieved in exactly the same way that it was lived. And that's why, as I mentioned, and, and she also mentioned the puzzle analogy, you're never going to be able to, to to get back exactly what that experience was. The closest you can come to it is probably immediately following it, you know, trying, uh, actually re- recalling the um, surrounding circumstances of that event. But every single time that you recall that memory thereafter, it's no matter how genetically gifted you are, um, no matter how much dopamine, the density of your dopamine receptors, what have you, it's just physically impossible for you to retrieve that memory as it actually was. What you're actually remembering, as I mentioned earlier when I talked about the, the synthetic mirage that you think you're remembering your birth, but you're not, you're actually remembering is the previous memory. It's like layers. La- if any of you guys edit videos, it's like layers on top of each other. And this is actually why eyewitness testimony is so unreliable. Because the the way that people are actually remembering things, it's not so much that you're remembering, you know, what the event was that you witnessed or, um, you know, something that you saw or heard. You're you're recalling different gradations of what that experience was. Not to mention the fact that eyewitness testimony, for example, is very easily affected by things like questioning by a lawyer, right? Like. It's you know you see it all the time where fragments of a memory um, might you know be unknowingly combined with information pre- presented by the prosecutor, which leads to inaccurate recall. If you're not sure if the suspect had a green hat or a blue hat, and was he wearing gloves? I can't remember. And then the prosecutor's like, he was wearing gloves, wasn't he? He was wearing a green hat, wasn't he? It's very easy for your mind to kind of fill in the blanks, and you know. Imagine him with the green hat and with the gloves. Kind of, you know, put that puzzle together 
in the most sensible fashion because that is how we reconstruct memory. And that is why this phenomenon, the malleability of memory, is so common because our brain will just put that puzzle together for us, right? Rather than, you know, more so than just watching a video of what the experience was. And we can take this a step farther. Sometimes our memories are completely fallible. Sometimes we remember things that didn't even happen at all. There was one study, this this is actually quite renowned, a study done by a neuroscientist at McGill University where the experimenter said they reviewed a collection of anecdotes about people who had experienced who had lived through 9-11. And it turns out that most people's memory of the 9-11 terrorist attacks played quite a few tricks on them. And when they explained their flashbulb memories of the events in, in this experiment, most people recalled seeing television footage of September 11th and seeing the first plane hitting the North Tower of the World Trade Center. You know, in, in, in the study, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll throw up the numbers in a moment, but, you know, the vast majority of people were confident that on the day of the 9-11 attacks, they saw the footage of the plane hitting the World Trade Centers. You guys, that footage actually didn't air on 9-11. For those of you who, um, like me, I was nine years old on 9-11, who, who were, you know, kids during that, you probably remember seeing on TV um, that day, you're coming home and, and seeing, you know, the, the towers up in smoke and the plane and the devastation. Guys, that footage aired for the first time the following day. But but one of the one of the people that was uh, interviewed, Kareem Nader, uh, who mentioned you know remembering that he wasn't the only one because in the 2003 study um, of I think it was like 569 college students, it was found that 73 percent shared this misperception that on 9/11 there was TV footage hitting the towers. So memory can be extremely unreliable because of how malleable it is and how open to influence it is and how dynamic these pathways are. You know, when we talk about eyewitness testimony, studies have been done where researchers have created false memories in normal individuals. And these subjects were certain that the memories are real. So Elizabeth Loftus, I mentioned at the University of California, Irvine, her and her colleague gave subjects written accounts of four events three of which they had actually experienced, and one which was fiction. And the story centered on the subject being lost in a mall or another public place when he or she she was between four and six years old. A relative would provide realistic-sounding details for the false story, such as a description of the mall um, at which the subject's parents shopped. And after reading each story, subjects were asked to write down what else they remembered (laughs) from that fictional story of, you know, getting lost at the mall or whatever— and indicate whether or not they remembered it at all. And remarkably, a third of people, 33% of people, fully remembered the false event. And and further, in two follow-up interviews, 25% still claimed that they remembered the story even after they were told that it wasn't true. Can you can you imagine that? Someone makes up a story of something that you went through and I mean, you end up not only believing that it's true, but being certain, even in the face of the knowledge that it was fictional, that it actually happened to you because your mind, quite frankly, plays tricks on you. It fills in the gaps, you know, of the puzzle. And even when the ink has dried, right, it, 
in some ways, you know, this ends up being detrimental when it comes to things like trauma. Because for people who experience trauma, it's more likely to be remembered than, you know, most of your other lived experiences. Because when something elicits a an intense negative emotion, like a trauma, but your brain is more likely to encode it in that process of memory formation. And that's because distress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine that are released during a terrifying traumatic incident, they tend to render the experience vivid and memorable um, for the senses. So the most meaningful aspects of the experience for the victim are encoded. And that's that's actually from um, uh, Richard McNally, a psychologist at Harvard and the author of a book called Remembering Trauma. So when you're in this high-stress state, the function of the hippocampus, the region of the brain responsible for encoding, is put into super encoding mode. Um, and the central details of that event become burned into memory. And the, the subject might never forget them. So whether it's sexual assault victims or soldiers in combat or survivors in an earthquake, people have experienced traumatic events tend to remember the most essential and frightening elements of the event in vivid detail for life. And this is one aspect of this memory conversation that kind of sucks. You know, I mean, I mentioned earlier at the outset how memory is not random, how, you know, you're, you're sitting on the subway and you remember something that happened in your childhood. Um, and my hypothesis was that you do have control over that. And that is true. That is very much true for the reasons that I'm talking about with actually exercising the neuronal pathways and going through the retrieval and, you know, pushing the weight up on the bench instead of getting the assist from your friend. That's all true. But one of the other reasons why it's not random is when your brain goes into the super um, encoding mode that McNally talks about, when you're in fight or flight, you're in a dangerous situation and, you know, maybe you've seen something traumatic, maybe you've been through something, you know, you've been to war or you've been assaulted or something's happened to you. The, the sad reality is once that's encoded, sometimes it's never forgotten, even if you want to forget it. I mean, people undergo all sorts of therapy and some hypnosis to help them have more control over um, not remembering, but it's it's far easier to remember than it is to forget, you know, and and it almost it because that's the way that the that the brain works. It it, it you know calls to mind in psychology. There's the uh, the the white polar bear problem or, or the white polar bear experiment uh, experiment where they asked a handful of subjects, you know, I want you to to sit in this room for ten minutes or whatever it was, and no matter what, you know, I you can think about whatever you want over the ten minutes, but just don't think about the white polar bear. And then they gave the the subjects a notepad. And told them, you know, to write down everything they thought about over the 10 minutes. And what do you think they thought about? The polar bear. Why? Because the more that you try to suppress your thoughts and your memories, the more you actually focus on them. So it ends up being very counterintuitive. And, you know, when we talk about forgetting, uh, I, I actually, I can't remember if I made, <laughs> this is the problem because I, I recorded the segment before and I'm not quite sure if it, if I mentioned this before or in the first iteration or if I mentioned this in this iteration so I'm going to assume that I did mention it. I'll mention it again. Um, but in the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where the whole premise is the the main character, Jim Carrey, wants to forget his um, girlfriend, Kate Winslet. So what does he do? He goes to you know goes through this experimental therapy or whatever to try to unremember to try to like. I mean, it was it was actually it was not at all scientifically accurate. It was essentially the experimenter was able to go go into his brain and see the memories of her and 
delete them, which is obviously based on everything that we've talked about, not at all how it works. But again, it does it does kind of demonstrate the the difficulty um, in you know control over what you remember. Because I guess the, the biggest takeaway from the episode for for you guys, I want to be that you do have control over your memory. But you know when we talk about trauma and super encoding, that's one area where it's kind of outside of your control. And you know the 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 last thing that I want to mention about memory, and I know I know it's been God like there's been so so much so much here, but I, I you know I want to make sure I cover all my bases is nostalgia and it's a longing for the past because as humans we have a tendency to remember things more fondly than they've been experienced, you know, and there's actually a psychological basis for nostalgia, and it's a phenomenon in psychology called rosy retrospection, double R, also known as Ricky Rosen. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> and rosy retrospection, it it's it's why when you know you break up with someone, yeah, it feels sad for a little while, but when you look back on it, all you can remember is the positive memories. It's why, you know, you think that high school was terrible and then you look back and you kind of have this longing for some of the better days of high school. I mean, I certainly don't, but a lot of people do. The Romans referred to this phenomenon with the Latin phrase memoria pre. Let me try not to butcher this. Memoria praetorium bonorum, which translates in English to the past is always well remembered. We just remember things more favorably than we did at the time. Um, and, I, you know, why is that the case? To some degree, and, and this, this could be a whole other episode, but some, so to some degree, I don't think we we can fully appreciate the breadth of emotions of the present unless we're in the present, if that makes sense. While we're in the present, we know how how painful and how like traumatic and distressing something can be. But once we're removed from that pain and those negative feelings, it just it becomes meaningless to us. That's that's our our um our you know fundamental bo- uh, asymmetrical temporal um, view on on experiences where we we you know we only care about future pains and pleasures and we don't really care about past pain and pain and pleasures and that actually explored in episode thirteen on death and mortality so if you're interested in time at all and how we you know regard time I would definitely listen to episode um, episode thirteen. The bottom line is that you can improve your memory and thanks to you know neuroplasticity, you can challenge your brain with new activities to force the brain to create these neural pathways and to form unique connections. And these activities should be cumulative and rewarding, and they're best when they're outside your comfort zone, like learning a new language or teaching yourself how to play piano. You know, we, we work out at the gym. So many of us are, are you know, invested in sculpting our bodies and looking the best we can while our brains are rotting, you guys. Um, so why, I mean, just, just every day, I mean, to, um, I, I don't, I don't know like if there are apps for this and I, I probably would not recommend an app for you guys, but you know, do things that force you to remember. I mean, I'm a big proponent of Sporkle, um, where it's a, a website where, where you have to like make a list of all the presidents or, you know, all the Oscar winning movies or, you know, all the characters in Disney, whatever. And you're actually, when you do that, you're actually forcing yourself to remember these things rather than, you know, relying on AIDS or 
Trivia. Oh my God, I love trivia, you guys. Go to bar trivia with your friends. Um, play, you know, Trivial Pursuit. Who wants to be a millionaire? Watch Jeopardy every night. There's so much that you can do where you're actually forcing yourself to retrieve these memories, these things that you've learned in the past before they disappear forever. So it's just, it's something to to consider, especially, you know, for those of you who aren't in school anymore and who probably who feel like lethargic and that they're not using their brain regularly, just do that and I guarantee you're going to start to remember things like who won the World Series in 1995 more easily. So this has been a jam-packed episode. This is probably, in terms of content, this was one of the more content-heavy episodes I've done in recent memory. Um, And as you know, at the end of the episode, I like to kind of go back through, um, summarize things, you know, pull pull out, extract the most important points, um, and wrap everything up in a nice little bow. So we we opened up and we talked about the seemingly arbitrary nature of why we remember things, which ends up not being, you know, ended up not being arbitrary at all. Uh, we, we, we talked about why it's important to have memories from almost a physiolo- uh, uh, excuse me, a philosophical and metaphysical perspective of, of what the meaning is of experiences if we don't go back and revisit them. We talked about infantile amnesia and how it's actually physiologically impossible to remember things from the early in your life because we need language to encode the memories. We differentiated between short-term memory, like working memory, and long-term memory, um, both episodic, things that have happened to you autobiographically, and semantic, your knowledge of the world. We went through the uh, neuro uh, neuroscientific the neuroscience basis for encoding, storage, and retrieval, um, and why is it that once the ink has dried, it becomes very difficult to change how we you know, understand something um, and how to unlearn it, so to speak. We went into why the 10% myth is incorrect on um, you know, how much of our brain capacity we use, and most importantly, huge takeaway, why if you don't rehearse or return to your memories, you will lose them forever. We talked about the outsourced brain hypothesis and how going on Google to look things up ends up decaying your neuronal pathways, as well as the malleability of memory and why it ends up being unreliable for things like eyewitness testimony, um, as well as in high stress states, um, why trauma is more likely to be super encoded. And finally, we talked about um, the rosy retrospection, the double R, uh, nostalgia, and how you can improve improve your memory by working it out. This has been a, a really, really fun episode, you guys. I'm excited for what's to come in, in, in the future of the pod. Uh, we have two episodes coming up. Um, one I kind of alluded to earlier is a bonus episode. Um, unlike any I've done before because I was very ill when I was doing it, and um, it, I think it ended up being kind of funny and, and ho- hopefully uh, fun to listen to. And then the second um, will continue some of the themes that I started to talk about in this episode, tackling the culture of consumption, why we should be concerned about the future of innovation. And last year, I went through my top 100 movies. Now I'm going to reveal to you my picks for the most overrated films of all time, the worst movies ever made. Those episodes are coming up next here on Nervous Habits. Thank you so much for listening to this 2020 episode of Nervous Habits. Um, I am your host, Ricky Rosen. This was a lot of fun to record, and I'm pumped for the slate of episodes to come. So keep it tuned in um, to Nervous Habits on Apple Podcast. Uh, Apple Podcast. Apple Podcasts. <laughs>
and Spotify. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, and on YouTube, just search for clips of Nervous Habits. Also, write to me on Gmail, uh, Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com, Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. And most importantly, guys, when you're at the bar and you can't for the life of you remember something, put away your phones and just brute force it. Stay nervous, guys. <laughs>